brother. Good morning, everyone. Steve, thank you for that worship. Got through it just fine. Um, let's, uh, let's say a prayer, and we can get started on the message. Father, we come before you this morning, and we have the freedom in this country that we can preach your word boldly and without hindrance, without fear of real persecution. Father, I pray this morning that uh, we listen to your word and that the words that I speak are from your word and that they're uh, ordained by you and that anything that I say, Lord, that uh, is misunderstood, that, that you clarify that as it leaves my mouth and gets to the ears of the hearer. Father, we know your word is perfect and we know that uh, many fall short of following it, uh, but what's important, Lord, is that we take a step today closer to you. I pray for the congregation this morning and the new visitors here that they're edified and encouraged. And I also pray for those that are hurting today uh, for whatever reason that uh, they take solace in the fact that you are the, the healer and the provider and uh, you are our counselor and that your plan is perfect. pray that you guide us in our thoughts and be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week... Uh, my name is Nate Porter, by the way. We've got some new visitors here this morning, so it's awesome to see you guys uh, and gals. Um, I spent the last couple of weeks, I'll do a quick summary of last week and the week before. I spoke on that passage in Matthew 23, and the subject of the, the message was the term hypocrisy, which is a Greek word for a play actor. And I use the example of the movie Tombstone, where that gal is, or the, the actor or actress is on the stage and she has a wood mask in front of her face and, and at the end of the, 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 the play, Kurt Russell leans over and says, well, who is so-and-so? And out comes the actress, Kate, I think was her name, or not Kate, it was another gal, and pulls out the mask and she was the actor, the actress, and that was, the Greek term for that was Hippocrates, and it just means play actor. And I preached on the message how in Matthew 23, six times, Jesus used the term, you hypocrites, uh, throughout this message, and he's speaking to his disciples, but just before that, he's talking to the Pharisees, and it never gives an indication that the Pharisees left, but rather the Pharisees were continuing to stay there, as it reads, and he's speaking to the people, but he's speaking about the Pharisees, and then finally, around Matthew 23, uh, 9, he gets into, or 23.12, no, 23.9, he gets into um, calling them hypocrites. And in 12 is the first time he calls them, or verse 13, he calls them hypocrites for the first time. And six times he goes on to really challenge what they're doing and how they're acting and, and what they're teaching. And the sermon that was the previous week from last week, so three weeks ago, I guess it would be, was the, the message, or no, two weeks ago, was the message on persecution. And how in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus makes it very clear when he says to the disciples that, um, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, he says, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's telling the disciples that you too will be persecuted for the faith. 
You're, as Christians, you're going to be, as disciples of mine, you will be persecuted. And I finished up that message. I obviously gave a very Reader's Digest version of the, the two messages, but I finished up the second message with the anecdote for falling away. Because in Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and then he has to go and explain the parable of the sower. And the second seed that was sown in the parable of the sower fell on rocky places. And an interesting thing is said there, which I noticed this morning, which I had highlighted in the past, probably 15 years ago when I read this passage, I highlighted this. And it says, I'm just going to read Matthew 13. It says, The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. It doesn't say because of the world, he quickly falls away. That's the next seed that was sown because of the deceitfulness of wealth and the the worries of this life, choke it out, making it unfruitful. But the seed that was thrown on rocky places was not fruitful because the persecution because of the word. The word of God is how I'm seeing that. And so when I look at the anecdote of what we can look at from from Matthew chapter 13 in in the message two weeks ago, is that God says, in teaching, the way that David withheld leaving God, and the way he kept his eyes on, on God, the way that the early apostles and the early people of faith kept their uh, desires and their will towards God, was to follow the will of God and to focus on Jesus. And it says in, in Hebrews 12 that, that we are to um, focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what we're supposed to focus on. So that's the anecdote for the persecution that we see. And then he tells us later in 1 Peter to be holy as God is holy. The sanctification process. Now, I quickly summarize these last two weeks because that persecution that we looked at from two weeks ago, um, I believe today that persecution is not just going to come from the government. I don't believe that persecution is just going to come from atheists or agnostics. I believe that persecution is going to come sometimes from the religious circles that we run in. It's not just going to be from the government saying, hey, because you donated money to a church body, by the way, uh, we'll talk about that later, uh, I think, because you donated to a church body or because you, you donated to this nonprofit organization that's preaching Jesus, you're now going to be audited. It's not just that type of persecution that's going to come to the people that call themselves Christians or that are disciples of God. <clears throat> so, I look at that and I just want to recognize that because Jesus talks about to the Pharisees when he says, woe to you, you hypocrites. He's talking to the religious leaders of the day. Now, there's another accusation tying into today's message and I'll look at Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew 15, there are some Pharisees and there are some teachers of the law that came to present themselves to Jesus. And they asked him a question, more of a trap. And they said, why do your disciples, and he's in verse 2, verse two chapter 15, Matthew 15, two, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Basically, they were unclean. The, the, the religious people of the day needed a wash, so they were not unclean as they partook in food. And the religious leaders come to Jesus and says, why do your 
disciples, why do they break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash before they're eating their food. And Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus, he gives them an example, and he says, Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right about you when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but their teachings are but rules taught by men. You nullify the word of God. You oppose the word of God. You do away with the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The traditions of men. And some of these traditions that he's referring to were retracted from Scripture. Some of the traditions that the Pharisees were following were taken maybe out of context, but they were taken from the Word, from the law. And he says, you nullify the Word of God, you make the Word of God obsolete because of your tradition. And I got to thinking about this, and I thought, well, maybe some of my belief system is based on tradition. Maybe some of my belief system is based on what I have been taught from the time I was a little one, or maybe some of my tradition or some teachings that I got from my mentor that maybe don't line up scripturally, and I'm so rooted in them, and I'm so fixated on them, that I'm going to be right, because what I learned was right a long time ago, and it can't be wrong now, and so I'm going to hold on to that tradition, and I'm going to nullify the Word of God. Is it possible, is it possible, that that could be some of us? Present company, I mean, myself included, everyone. Is it possible we hold on to what we think is right because we've always done it, but it may not be in line with Scripture? It may not be in line with the Word of God. And when Jesus tells the Pharisees, you nullify it, He's not giving them a compliment. He's saying, you guys are not doing this right. For the sake of what you used to believe, or you still believe, it's wrong. And when you look at Scripture, and you continue on in this passage in Matthew 15, there's this teaching out there that it's don't offend people. You don't want to step on toes as a preacher. You don't want to say something to them that may cause them to be uncomfortable, or to question their salvation, or to question their belief system. And when you continue on in Matthew 15, after Jesus said you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition and you're, you're, you're honoring me with your lips but your hearts are for, far from me, you're worshiping me in vain, their teachings are but rules taught by men, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, this is what makes him unclean. So when they came to him and says, why do your disciples... What? Not wash their hands before they eat. They're breaking the traditions of men. He's referring to this clean and unclean food law here. 
And Jesus says, let me explain to you what I meant at, before I called them and tell them that they were nullifying the word of God when they asked me why don't they wash their hands. He talks, starts talking about the food laws and he says, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean. In another passage it says, it's from the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. There's this idea about what's inside of a human being is what God considers clean or unclean. It's not what I eat. It's not that I got I had stuff on my hands and I ate a sandwich. That's not what it's talking about. But then the disciples said to him, they came to Jesus and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And the next verse, Jesus, oh, Jesus says, bring him, bring him back here. I want to explain what I meant. I don't want to offend the Pharisees. I, I want to I I be ecumenical here. I want to be loving. Is that what Jesus said? No. Jesus says, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. And then he doubles down. He doubles down on the religious leaders and says, leave them. They are blind guides. They are blind guides. These people that walked around with the phylacteries and the, the phylacteries and the tassels and they had the robes on and they looked very religious and very spiritual and, and the leaders of their, their, their belief system, Jesus calls them hypocrites. He says, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition and you are blind guides. A few days ago, I got a call, a text message actually, from a, one of my closest friends, uh, and, and he will probably be a, a lifetime friend. Um, he will be a lifetime friend. He is a, a man after God's heart. He seeks the word. He seeks truth. He seeks knowledge. He seeks doing the right thing, even in hard times. So he sends me a text message, and he says, I've, I need to talk to you about something. Usually it's, yo, what's up, St. Nate? Uh, anything I can pray for you about. You know, it's just really, he's kind of a funny guy. But he says, can you call me when you get a few minutes? And I said, sure. So I had some time last night. Um, we got back from the hills and I had service, so I called him. And he's telling me that this church body, that he's, uh, he's actually an elder at this church body. And he was asked to be an elder, and he met with a couple of the elders, and they interviewed him, if you will, and they, they, they said, you're an elder. And just for the record, he's, he's, uh, he is qualified based on Titus chapter 1. He meets the qualifications of an elder. And so he's, because he asked me, you know, he, he called me before they appointed him and he says, they've asked me to be an elder at this church. What do you think? And I said, well, let's go through the list. And we went through the list and I said, unless there's something I don't know about and I know you're pretty good, I think you're, I think you're qualified to take on this noble task. And so he becomes an elder and their preacher decides to leave and go to a different state. So I'm telling you guys now, Brendan and I are probably going to be moving to Nebraska and be, no, I'm just kidding. So, we're, we're not moving to Nebraska. It's too flat. I need the mountains. Steve might disagree with me about Nebraska. But, they're looking to hire a new preacher. And so, in this meeting, the elders get together and they start discussing how they're going to go about it. So, they hire a um, committee. This committee is to interview preachers and all that good stuff. And in the conversation... They start talking about what that preacher must believe. 
And it turns out, this is all in conversation we had last night, it turns out that the eldership is divided on their belief system. <laughs> is this ringing a bell? The eldership is divided on a belief system. You get two or three elders believe in this, and two or three elders believe this, and not on, not on uh, uh, what are we, eschatology, Dennis, the uh, pre-trib or post-trib. Not, not something that, I don't want to say it's not important, it's extremely important, but it's not something, I believe that I can have a difference of opinion on something like that, and, and God's not going to strike me down on it, uh, or, or judge me on that. I think we can have a different understanding. Uh, that's just my opinion. This is a this is a matter of of vital importance. One man says this is how you're saved, another man says this is how you're saved. And as we're going through this this conversation, he's pretty nervous about how he's going to deal with this. How he's going to deal with this? And I said, well, as I see it right now, um, one of you two is not qualified. He says, well, how do you how do you come to that? I said, well, let's just go to Titus real quick. In the book of Titus, chapter 1, it says about an elder. There's three issues that I, that I saw with the conversation. I'll, I'll try and make it brief. The first issue that I see is that if you have two different leaders in the church leading a church and they're, and they're, they're separated on their doctrinal beliefs, this passage about an elder says this. He must, meaning it's a requirement, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. That word sound means uncorrupted. That's literally the word. It means uncorrupted. He must, he must uh, encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. I'm not saying that my friend is right. I'm not saying the other man is right, right or wrong. What I'm saying is you have two different belief systems that if two people were studying with him, one would go, well, no, that's wrong. And the other one would say, well, no, that's wrong. And you're not united. And in John chapter 17, Jesus says, my prayer for them is that they be unified so that the people will know that God sent Jesus. That's the point of John 17. He says, my goal is that you guys are unified in thought. And unified in thought or unified on Christ? It's unified on Christ. It's unified on the written word. It's unified in our belief system so that we can be one. We can be one as the Father and Jesus are one and that other people can look and see the church and say, man, they really get along and they're united. And it's an appeal to other people. It's the light. It's the salt. That's how we are the light and the salt. And so I explained to them, I said, I believe that it's something a conversation needs to happen. You don't sweep it under the rug. You talk about it. And you speak the truth in love, and you do a Bible study together. So I told him we had a similar situation at some point, and the goal and the defense the entire time, the entire time you go through something like that, if that God forbid ever happens in this church body, we have one elder right now. What is going to be our statement of faith, brother? This, this is our statement of faith. The Word of God. It'll be a conversation where you sit down and you study it together and you focus on whatever topic that you need to focus on. And I did warn him that it will not matter, and we're talking a little bit about persecution, that no amount of scripture, no amount of Bible study, no amount of reading 
will convince some people otherwise. Jesus says, even if a man rises from the dead, they may not believe. I'm often asked, um, when I invite people to church and we start talking about it, and they, the, the question is, well, how many people come to your church? And I said, well, it's not my church. I just want to clarify something. I'm just one of three preachers here. Um, it's not my church. It's God's church. It's the body of Christ. And we are just stewards of his time that he gives us. Uh, but I say on average we have you know, 40 to 60 people that, that show up on, a, on any given Sunday morning, depending on the season. Uh, that number would be cut in half if two or three of our families who are filled with a gaggle full of kids decided not to show up. But other than that, we usually have 40 to 60 people. And I, I can sometimes get, well, man, you guys are pretty small. And I said, yeah, we're, we're fairly a smaller congregation. We're not a huge, we have 2,000 people showing up or 500 people showing up. Um, and when I used to think about that, I go, I wonder if, I wonder if uh, I'm preaching the wrong thing. I wonder if our worship needs a re- revision. I wonder if we had to get like a smoke, a smoke screen or something. Um, Electric guitar, trees, Steve drums. What do we got? What do we got to do different to just to just grow? And I thought, Don thought about that, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe the teaching, if we're sticking to this, is not always palpable for every listener. Maybe if we stand firm on what God says, people are going to leave there and say, well, I'm not going back to that church. I heard uh, a while back that a couple was a member of a congregation and they were at a Bible study and somebody had made a comment about an alternative lifestyle in speaking out against it. uh, This is what the Word says and and this is what I deduced from the conversation. This is what the Word says, and so this type of lifestyle is you know, not, not advocated in Scripture. In fact, God has designed you know, a marriage between a, a man and a, a woman, and, and, and that, that comment or that teaching actually caused a couple to leave, leave church. Like, we're not, we're not going there anymore because of either it's judgmental or hateful or whatever the, whatever the reason being. But again... It's, it's possible that the teachings that come from a pulpit are not always palpable because the Word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And when I look at the, or the Pharisees, when Jesus, when Jesus said to his disciples, you know, uh, when the disciples said to Jesus, do you know that you offended the Pharisees? Jesus doubled down and said, he said, leave them. He said, leave them. Leave them, for they are blind guides. I want you to understand through an illustration, blindness. Come here, Grant. Lane, come here, buddy. Come here. All right. I know you can see through this because I bet. Come here. Come here. Look up. All right. Good deal. Can you see me? Nope. Look at me. Look right at me. Okay. 
I want you to walk in around the congregation and come right back here. Who's got a stopwatch? Rachel? No, no, just inside the building. You got a stopwatch, Rachel? So, well, hold on. On your mark, say when. As fast as you can. No, lead him. Don't push him. Get in front. All right. Go. That's as fast as you can go, Elaine. I've seen you run, son. You are quick. Turn the other way. Look forward. You're all right, Grant. Keep going. Hurry up, Lane. Sometimes we hit a bump in the road. It's okay. Man, I could spend all day doing a challenge here, and my boys are just saying, I could be 10 seconds faster. Come on, Lane. Hurry up. And stop. Okay, come here, Lane. What's the time? 36 seconds. Pretty good. Pretty good. All right, Lane, your turn. Grant, leave that on for me, would you, bud? Come here. All right. All right, Lane. Can you see? No. You can't? No. All right. Here's Grant right here. Turn around. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Let's get your stopwatch ready. Do it again. All right, come on back. Take your, take your, <laughs> thanks for being good sports. That would have taken about eight minutes. Yeah. Get my point? Leave them, for they are blind Blind guides. They were going off tradition. In Matthew 23, six times Jesus calls them hypocrites. At the top of the Matthew 23, it says seven woes. That was added by the translators of the word. It's kind of a subtitle to that passage. But he says in Matthew 23, 16, Woe to you, blind guides. They're not only opposing God through their teaching, but they're leading others down the same path. And they're actually causing people to blaspheme God. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is addressing Jews and Gentiles alike and throughout, throughout the book. We have what's called the Roman road. But in Romans chapter 2, he just gets done in Romans chapter 1 talking about creation and how that, that God's divine power is made known from what He has made. And he talks about the wrath of God is on these people because they refuse to love Him and they worship the created things rather than the Creator. And then he says that they are filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed. And so he says they don't know God's righteousness that comes to those who do such, such things deserve death. The righteous decree that deserve death. And then he says to the Jews, you therefore... Sorry, I'm a, I'm a passage ahead of here. Uh, I'm in verse 17 now. I was in the wrong spot. And then he says, he's talking to the Jews here, and he says, now you, if you call yourselves a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, 
an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among Gentiles because of you. They're teaching one thing, but they're doing another. And again, he says in, in, in one of the Gospels that they're like whitewashed tombs. They're great looking on the outside and religious on the outside, but inside they're full of dead bones. Now I know this is like, man, is there any positive to this sermon? <laughs> is there anything good? I'm like, well, I think it's good. Beware. The scriptures say beware, and I think I did a study of 27 books or letters or epistles in the New Testament, 24 of them warn against false teaching. Jesus constantly talks about false teaching. And the only way to know if the guy standing in front of you, including me, is not a false teacher, is this. You have to understand this for yourself. You can't take the preacher's word for it. I've taken the preacher's word for it, and I looked at it, and I studied what he was teaching, and I went, he's wrong. He conflicts with everything God has spoken here. He conflicts with the teaching that God has given to us, the love letter that he's given to us. And the people that are doing that, they're blind guys, they're the blind leading the blind. So how do we avoid this blindness? How do we take these blinders off and see it for what it is? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, there's this prophet who's speaking. And he says, uh, 42, 7 through 9, it's a wonderful chapter, but just going to focus on the 7 through 9. He says, I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Who is this prophet talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And he says, I will take hold of your hand, I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And I can tell you this much. That was clean, by the way, Lane. You're good. I've sat in the darkness. I've been in the dungeon. I spent years in the dungeon. I spent years in the darkness. I know what it feels like. I can remember it. And then someone introduced me to a way that I could understand it to who Jesus is. And what he did for me. And in Luke chapter 4. Starting in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee. And the power of the spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in the synagogues and everyone praised him. He went on to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying today to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The prophet Isaiah wrote down, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. Leave them! They are blind guides! Is what Jesus is pointing to the Pharisees who are focusing on the traditions of men rather than the Word of God. And he says, leave them! They're hypocrites! They're blind guides! And you see how effective the blind leading the blind are. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And Jesus says, I came here to give sight for the blind, to recover you so you could see again. You could see truth. And maybe I get so frustrated when I look around and I can understand when I start really thinking about it what Jesus meant when He was up there and He sat down and He looked at Jerusalem and He wept. Because I can look around this entire valley. I can look around this entire nation and I can see teachings that are taught that are so contrary to Scripture and they're leading people away from the true nature of who God is. And it sickens me. It sickens me. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I'm not without struggles. What I'm saying is, when you look at my teaching, challenge me on anything you hear from the pulpit. Challenge me. And I will say, let's study it out together. Let me study it out. Maybe I've stumbled along the way. Maybe some of my traditions have come in to play in my heart, and I need to remove myself from that. That's possible. There's very little pride pride in my life. I've got six children and a wife that makes sure of that. So challenge me on that when this teaching comes up and you go, I don't understand. Do you think this is false? I'll go, hey, this is what it says. Always be prepared to give an answer for the reason you believe why you believe what you do. So here, this is why I believe what I do is the Word of God. And that's what I told my brother Matt. I said, Matt, you've got to understand. If you're going to stand up for something, you better be ready with Scripture to back it up. You better be in there and saying, well, here, and I'm not meaning getting up there and yelling and screaming at people, but this is why I believe what I do. Why do you believe what you do? Is it because of tradition, or is it because of the Word of God? Which one is it? If it's because of the Word of God, then we can go somewhere. We've got a benchmark to go off of. It's because of tradition. I'm going to say, leave them. They're blind guides. Because that's what Jesus said to do. I don't even think I made it through like half my notes here. They, they just It doesn't line up with what I was saying. But that's okay. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 3, the end of it, and the beginning of Matthew 4. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, I think we figured around 70 miles, 
42 miles, 70 miles. He came a long way. Jesus came a long way to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. He was on a journey. He had a purpose. I'm going to go be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And Jesus says, I need to be baptized you. Why why are you doing this? He goes, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. John says, so I'm going to baptize Jesus. It says Jesus came up out of the water and three things happened. The spirit of death came down and lit on him. God spoke and he said, "With this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then he was led into the desert to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. He fasted for 40 days and he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. You have the son of God, the creator of the universe according to Colossians chapter 1. In the beginning, John 1 was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word made His flesh, and, made his dwelling, and the Word became flesh, and made His dwelling among us. So Jesus is, is God in the flesh, and He comes down here, and He's tempted by the adversary. He could have just ended everything right there. He could have turned the stones into children of Abraham. He could have done anything He wanted, because He's the Creator, He's God. And what does He do? When, when, when the adversary, when Satan constantly tempts him and challenges him and tempts him, what does he say, brother? Three times. He, he goes to Scripture. He says, it is written. It is written. It is written. Three times. Jesus is encouraging the people to leave the blind guides through their hypocrisy who are taking them to a place that they don't want to go. And he says, follow me. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you can throw the excuse about, well, that's your interpretation. Well, it is my interpretation. What's your interpretation of it? Show yourself approved. Right? Go into Scripture and show yourself approved. That's my understanding. It is written. And that's what Jesus says. It is written. We are coming to a time... I read an article this morning, a political article, about a a political leader in our country that is referencing the church and referencing Christianity and referencing religion a lot in the last a lot more than normal in the last two or three months I mean every time this this political leader is in the paper it's about so and so this person said this because they're a white religious zealot nationalist and it's a white religion I look around I don't see all white people here. Christianity (laughs) is a faith of all colors. All colors. And so this person is being blasted by the media as being a white nationalist. I'm like, maybe she's saying something that's crazy. Maybe she's so far out there saying things that are completely against the word of God. And I start reading her quotes and I go, well, maybe I'm a white nationalist. I can't disagree with what she's saying. Give us a joke about white nationalists, right? Okay, only a couple people laugh. I hope you understand. 
She's being accused of being a white nationalist. I'm like, no, she's being, she's, she's saying this is what Scripture says. This is what I believe, that the church needs to stand up for truth and stand firm and boldly for truth. And we're in a time when it's not happening. And when God says, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, salt preserves things. It keeps things from spoiling. And when he says, you are the light on a hill, man, if we don't have the light, if we're not the light, are we blind guides? I think those are all questions we need to ask ourselves. And I think importantly, we need to ask ourselves if our traditions are nullifying the written word of God. And finally, um, I want to clarify something in Hebrews when he said, when when uh, the writer says, "Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the Author." and perfecter of our faith. I write here, what matters to Jesus is our future, not our past. That's what matters to God. That's what matters to Jesus. What is our future? Because he says that you, if you follow him, and you do what God asks you to do, that you will be cleansed from past sins. When I talk about the dungeon and the jail, the darkness that I was in, man, I thank God for forgiving me for things that I did wrong. That's the gospel. (laughs) That's the gospel. Look ahead, not behind. That's all I have for today. Uh, Dad, I think you have communion this morning. And Ridge, are you going to be doing a communion song for us? All right.